The reading this morning is taken from John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. You'll find these in the brochure. If you want to follow in the Bible, they're on page 1,532. The next day, a great crowd that had come forth for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look at how the whole world has gone after him. Okay, well, uh, can I ask you please to open up the leaflet that Michael just read from? As he said, on the top left is the passage that we're looking at today. Uh, And underneath, as usual, some notes that will help you to follow along. Uh, Geoffrey Lim is my name. I just want to add my welcome to that of Julie's before. It's great to have you with us here this morning. Uh, Last week in our series in John, we saw Jesus arrive in Bethany, uh, where he was honoured at a dinner for having raised Lazarus from the dead. We saw how that set in motion a train of events that will lead to his own death. Uh, This week, he comes to Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem is the capital And it's the epicentre of all the opposition to him. Today we're going to see what happens. You'll see in your outline there what happens when Jesus gets to Jerusalem at point one. I want to ask four questions uh, which help us to reflect on what's taking place. Firstly, what do the crowd think is happening when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem? Pick it up with me again in verses 12 and 13. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting... Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. Well, there's a great crowd that's come for the festival and they hear that Jesus is near. Uh, The festival that's being referred to is the Passover. Uh, And for the Jews, this is the most important day in their calendar, kind of like Christmas or Lunar New Year for us. As a result, there's a buzz about the city. There's excitement. Everyone is talking about Jesus. Everyone wants to know what will happen when he finally gets here. What they shout indicates what they think is taking place. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. The great crowd thinks that they are welcoming their king. And the king of Israel in particular, that is the one who will set them free from Roman oppression. The one who will restore their nation to its former Old Testament glory. You see that from some of the other little details. You notice that it talks about them taking palm branches uh, to wave to welcome him. 
Now, the palm branches are a reference right back to the time of the Exodus, when the Israelites were to use palm branches uh, to celebrate God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. This is during the Feast of the Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Likewise, the first part of the quote there, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, This is a direct quote from uh, Psalm 118, which you can see printed there on your handout. Psalm 118 is a a psalm that speaks of uh, God's great goodness to Old Testament Israel over the decades, over the centuries. But the other detail that makes it clear what they're thinking of is where they call him the King of Israel, the King of Israel there in verse 13. Now, uh, this is the only time in John's Gospel, apart from one other, where Jesus is referred to as the King of Israel. And I take it it's done deliberately to fit with the theme of how they expected him to liberate the nation from their Roman overlords. Actually, if you look back in chapter 1, verse 49, printed there on your handout, here's the other reference. This is right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, before anyone's really worked out what he's on about. Chapter 1, verse 49, there in your handout, Nathanael declared to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I, told you, I saw you under the fig tree, you'll see greater things than that. And he added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now it's quite clear that back in chapter 1, Nathanael didn't really understand what was going on. He didn't really grasp the significance of what it means to see greater things. In the same way, here in John 12, the crowd's praise is genuine, but they don't see the whole picture. Of course, for us, we readers, well, we know how fickle the crowd can be. We know how easily they will turn on him in the days ahead. So, second question then, What does Jesus think is happening as he comes to Jerusalem? What does Jesus think is happening? And pick it up with me in verses 14 and 15. There at the top of your handout again. John 12, verse 14 and 15. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Well, this is a little bit unorthodox. It's not what you're probably expecting, It's not the usual choice of ride for a conquering king. Uh, There's a picture on screen, actually. If you have a look at this picture on screen, you probably know what this is. This is a picture of King Charles's coronation vehicle that was used earlier this year. Uh, I did some research. His coronation vehicle, well, first, most important thing, was built by an Australian, uh, a guy called Jim Frecklington, in 2014. It cost, apparently, nearly four and a half million dollars. It's five metres long, it weighs three tonnes, it's made of gold and aluminum, it has hydraulic stabilisers and even air conditioning, although why you'd need that in England is beyond me. And it was drawn by six massive Windsor grey horses. It feels like a ride that's fitting of a king, doesn't it? So by choosing a young donkey... Jesus is making a deliberate statement about the kind of king that he will be. Humble, unpretentious, gentle and kind. 
This is not a king who comes charging in with a raised sword and an outstretched scepter to defeat the Romans. He comes with a very different purpose in mind. The thing is that John, as he records these events, he sees an even deeper significance when he quotes from Zechariah chapter 9. That's where the quote comes from and you can see it's printed down the bottom of the page. We're going to get to that in a moment. In Zechariah, at that point in Israel's history, we're talking 600 years BC. And at this point, God's judgment has finally fallen on Israel for her continual rejection of him as their God. As a result... Israel is annihilated by by the Babylonians in 586 BC and the remnant is transported to exile in Babylon itself. What happens next is that King Cyrus conquers Babylon in 538 BC and he starts to return those exiles to their homeland. Exiles like Zechariah are sent back to Israel. And from Jerusalem in 520 BC... Zechariah records this prophecy. Look at what he says down the bottom of of the page. You see Zechariah 9, 9 through uh, 10. I'm going to read a slightly longer section. Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations, and his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. A couple of things to notice about Zechariah's prophecy. Uh, The first is that, uh, as we've already seen, the choice of a donkey for Israel's king it anticipates an unusual type of deliverance. Humble, glory through death, exaltation, but only after humiliation. The second thing that you noticed in Zechariah's prophecy is that clearly there is a wider view than just the restoration of the nation of Israel. Look again at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10, halfway through that verse, He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah sees peace to the nations, not just to Israel, which is much more than what the Jews in Jesus' time were expecting. Well, As Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, we've seen what the crowd think is happening. We've seen what Jesus thinks is happening. Thirdly, right-hand side of your handout, what do the disciples think is happening? What do the disciples think is happening? Chapter 12, verse 16, on the left-hand side, verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Here's the great irony. Even as Jesus comes to Jerusalem, even now, so close to the finish, his own followers don't understand what's going on. It's only later, after Jesus was glorified. Now that phrase, after Jesus was glorified, I think is a reference to Jesus' death and resurrection that we'll see in the chapters ahead. And in fact, we know that it's been coming 
Back in chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. But at this point, his followers just can't comprehend how his pathway to glory would be through such awful suffering by being crucified at the hands of the Romans themselves. What John is telling us is that back then, they only had a partial or a limited understanding. By contrast, for us believers today, we who live on the other side of Christ's death and resurrection, we see it all. We see clearly how fortunate we are because in the way in which Jesus planned for this, what happens in the meantime is that he gives his spirit to enable us to make sense of it all. You'll see there, I've quoted from John 14, verse 26. This is coming up in the chapters ahead. Jesus says to his followers, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. This is the great work of the Holy Spirit, uh, the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit sent by the Father to point us to the Son so that we might fully understand the word and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, it was once said of Charles Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century Baptist preacher, uh, he was once asked, uh, what was he thinking as he climbed into the pulpit to preach each Sunday? Uh, like this one here, literally, an, an elevated pulpit. Uh, he said that he used to pray. And so he's asked, well, what do you pray? Here was his answer. He said, I pray, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Because what the Spirit does is enable us to understand who Jesus is and what his words mean. And uh, just to kind of give you advance warning, um, with that in mind, I thought that next year uh, in our preaching series, amongst other things, normally we just make our way through the books of the Bible, but we have a couple of topical series each year. Next year, I thought we'd try doing a short series on the Trinity. Um, we'll see how that goes. Sounds like a good idea at the moment. Well... Fourth and final question there on your handout. As Jesus comes to Jerusalem, what do the Pharisees think is happening? What do the Pharisees think is happening? Pick it up with me, verse 17, on the left-hand side, John chapter 12. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they'd heard that he performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The crowd continues to grow. Uh, Lazarus's raising of the dead, you might say, it continues to dominate the news cycle. And we see the ongoing opposition to Jesus. But the Pharisees, they sense that matters are spiraling out of control, that they're losing their grip on power. Actually, when the great crowd back in verse 12, verse 13 shouted, blessed is the king of Israel, blessed is the king of Israel, it's a direct challenge to the establishment. There already was a king. His name was Herod. 
But the Pharisees now, they say, uh, verse 19, look how the whole world, literally the cosmos, has gone after him. And that means that today's passage is going to close with a sense of irresistible inevitability. A sense of irresistible inevitability. See, last week we saw Jesus must die. In fact, his body was anointed for burial. This week, we see that though he must die, still he will be glorified even if the means and the manner is unclear. Well, on your hand out there, on the right-hand side, point two, so what for us? So what for us? Well, that's actually my big idea for today. My big idea for today, Jesus is warmly welcomed to Jerusalem. Though there is opposition that persists, and in the end, they will get him. And yet, still... Jesus will be glorified. Jesus will be glorified. After all, his journey to Jerusalem, it's been entirely on his own terms. And what happens next, it will be at his instigation, at his insistence, in accordance with his heavenly Father's will. What that means for you and me is that We who are privileged to stand on the other side of his death and his resurrection, we know ultimately nothing will stop the only remaining stage to God's plan from coming to fruition. You know what that last stage is? That Jesus be exalted forever and ever. We actually just sang that in that great Christmas carol. Not in that poor lowly stable with the oxen standing by. Shall we see him? But in heaven, seated at God's right hand on high, when like stars his children crowned, all in white shall gather round. In actual fact, at the very end of his life, the Apostle John, the author of this gospel that we're reading, he is granted the privilege of a final glimpse into eternity. I've recorded, I've I've printed what he recorded there from Revelation chapter 5. There on your handout, follow along, I'm going to read it out. Here is John getting a glimpse as to what eternity will be like. Verse 11. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. Two comments to make about this passage. Once again, you see that more than just the restoration of national Israel is on view. Jesus is more than just the king of Israel. In fact, John called him back in chapter 4 of his gospel, the saviour of the world. In chapter 1, he called him the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
And I presume that's why in Revelation chapter 5, in verse 13, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, they praise Jesus for who he is and what he's done. And so the second comment is from Revelation 5, verse 12. They cry, power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise to the Lamb who was slain. The Lamb who was slain. For what Jesus has done, he is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. He is the Lamb of God whose sacrifice takes away the sin of the world. For what Jesus has done, he deserves never-ending praise. There is no action or event in history more magnificent or more worthy of retelling, of retweeting, of re-delighting in again and again. What Jesus has done is so magnificent, it will never become old news. And that's the reason why here at Trinity... We keep talking about what God has done for us in Jesus. We repeat it day after day, year after year. And we will never move on to anything else. For there is no better news to share with this world. How does all that affect us then on the 10th of December, 2023? I'd like to offer two reflections. You'll see both of them printed there on the right-hand side of your handout. One is a corporate reflection that is on our life as a church family. The other, I guess, is a more personal and individual reflection for every believer. Let me talk about each of them. Firstly, how we think about ministry success and failure in 2023. Uh, each December, I try and take some time to share... I guess, a review of the year gone by. This year, as always, well, there have been some amazing ministry highlights, and I'll talk about some of them in just a moment. But there have also been significant challenges. Uh, thankfully, there haven't been any major disasters, although it's not always been smooth sailing. We are a community here of forgiven sinners so there will always be mistakes and misunderstanding, just as there will always be grace and forgiveness. Some of our ministry initiatives this year haven't played out the way which we'd hoped for. And to be honest, the biggest of those, of course, is the site redevelopment. It's a picture on screen to remind you of it. As you're aware, the two-year deadline for the developers to break ground, it came and went in August a few months ago. And it's meant we're now in limbo, in a holding pattern, until June next year. I want to say that for some of us, actually, that kind of uncertainty is very unsettling. Now, I don't have any updates to share with you today. Uh, obviously, things are starting to wind down for Christmas. Uh, as soon as I hear anything, I will let you know. It is worth me repeating, there is a very real possibility that the project won't proceed at all. And if that's the case, can I say, it will be terribly disappointing. Terribly disappointing to have to go back to the drawing board all over again. But what I want to say today is that even if that happens, even if the project doesn't go ahead, 
Jesus will still be glorified in eternity. Even the rather limp South Australian economy can't stop that from happening. Jesus will be exalted forever and ever because he is worthy of never-ending praise from every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea. How blessed we are to know that final cosmic outcome, whatever happens to our dreams in the meantime. And here's what's really remarkable. Sometimes I think God even gives us hints as to how his plans will not be thwarted. Take the site redevelopment, for example. As most of you know, we bought the car park out the back for the sake of the site redevelopment. We bought it nearly 30 years ago. And we've tried seven times over those 30 years to try to redevelop it. Each one's been unsuccessful. But here's the thing. Instead of being crushed by failure, I think it's pretty clear, God has given us different ways to proclaim Christ's name to our city. The most obvious one, well, instead of us drawing more people into 88 North Terrace over the last 30 years, we started sending people out to the suburbs to plant new churches. Next slide is a reminder, you saw this a couple of weeks ago, of how we have planted from this church five times over the last 20 years, and four of the churches that we've planted have also planted again. There are now 14 churches in the Trinity Network. I don't talk about this to boast about it anyway. I share this with you to say that nothing can or will hinder God's plan to glorify his son. How good is our God? Sometimes he even gives us hints as to how his plans will not be thwarted. Uh, even this year at Trinity City, with all the uncertainty around the cyber development, nothing's been wasted in God's economy. In particular, you'll see I've noted there on your handout, over this year, with the uncertainty around the site redevelopment, we've taken the opportunity to reconfigure our Sunday gatherings for future gospel growth. One of those changes, uh, well, our 5 and 7 p.m. gatherings finished up at the end of last year and they merged as a combined gathering at 6 p.m. We're coming to the end of the first year of 6 p.m. now. Can I say that the combined gathering is bigger than the two individual gatherings were last year? And, it's not a very technical phrase, but there's a really good vibe about the place. There's a picture on screen. Uh, every month at 6pm, uh, we have a monthly dinner. Well over 100 people stick around to be able to share together and to grow together. There's lots of other ways in which we see God's plan to glorify His Son continue. Uh, I've noted a few of them there on your handout. People coming to Christ. Next slide, thanks. Uh, over the course of this year, uh, there have been some 15 adult baptisms here, um, including uh, particularly significant for our 9am gathering, the first adult baptism in decades. The next slide, thanks. We continue to run our Explore Outreach course. Um, there have been six across the course of the year, nearly 100 participants. Uh, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. One of the really exciting things is that the last course, there's one currently running, but at the last course, uh, there were... Uh, both 
English speakers, Mandarin speakers, and Spanish speakers, all discovering who Jesus is. We've had new people join our church family over the course of the year. Next slide, thanks. It's a picture of Belong. This is the welcome lunch that we run throughout the year. Uh, uh, well over 60 people have been through and are now active members, most of whom are active members in our church family. And actually, uh, some of the other really encouraging things that have taken place. Next slide, thanks. Uh, you'll see a picture here. On the top is a picture of Sing the Gospel. This is the event that we hold midweek several times a year to enable people to gather to sing the Lord's praises and to sit under his word. That's in its second year of operation. It's going terrifically. Well over 100 people are there each time. But underneath as well, you'll see a picture of the deep dive, nights that began, chances for us to wrestle with scripture and, and to think theologically. A couple of those have run this year. And again, well over 100 there each time. But one of the most encouraging things for us to, to hear about in this year gone by is about the privilege we have of sending people and um, preparing leaders of God's church for the future. Next slide, thanks. Uh, you'll recall that this year was a significant one for us. Uh, we've had our biggest cohort of ministry apprentices and student ministers. As I always say, this is not for us. This is for God's global mission task force, which we've seen in a very real way as we farewell Paul Morenda today to head to another part of God's world. And actually, uh, in some late-breaking news, I have something else to share with you, which will give you, uh, you'll find really exciting. Um, you'll know that over the last uh, little while, we have been um, hoping that Dave and Tab would be able to return to East Asia uh, to keep taking the gospel there. Uh, on Friday, we heard that they've received their visa, um, which is just wonderful news. Uh, we will look to farewell them in late January as they prepare to take the good news of Jesus to another part of his world. Because God's plan to glorify his son, it won't be thwarted and it cannot fail. Here's my other comment then, down the bottom right of your handout. What does all this mean for us and how we think about our personal lives in the year ahead? Being utterly confident that Jesus will be exalted forever and ever also shapes how each of us reflect on our personal lives in this year gone by. If you were to do your personal year in review, then, like for all of us, I suspect there'd be a mixture of delights and disappointments, of celebrations and stresses. Likewise, as you think ahead to 2024... I suspect that for many of us, we'll be feeling nervous, anxious, even overwhelmed. The fragility of life at home and abroad. The uncertainty around rising cost of living. The pain of broken relationships in a broken world. All of it is hard to experience and impossible to fully avoid. And yet, a disciple of Christ knows that the end result is never in doubt. A disciple of Christ knows that our King will be crowned in glory. Because 
that's the big picture narrative and story of our lives. A disciple of Christ lives for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done, to see his glory cover the earth as the waters fill the sea. And that's actually why it's so reassuring to know that God's plan to exalt his son, it will never fail. And that means that everything and anything we face now, even if hard, even if less than ideal, even if it's not what we would prefer, all of it can be endured for the sake of the wondrous glory that is still to come. Our challenges are real. They ought not be denied or downplayed. But in the context of the eternal exaltation of the Christ, they are but a flash, a twinkling of the eye. What is guaranteed, what will last forever, is the never-ending praise of our King who laid down his life for us. As 2023 winds up, can I urge you, please be ambitious for that in 2024, because there really is no better way to live.